I've got to tell you that everything about this whole episode has made me really quite emotional. As I walked back into the welcoming foyer of Chicken Shed Theatre for the first time in many years, my mind was instantly taken back to the wonderful memories my wife and I had dropping our then nine-year-old son off for rehearsals at this magical venue that celebrates inclusion to enrich lives and transform our world. That's a hell of a mantra to live up to, but believe me, they do all that and a lot more. I met up with a wonderful and deeply passionate artistic director, Lou Stein, who took over the reins of this magnificent theatre some three years ago. I thought Chicken Shed was a magical place before, but Lou is taking it to a whole new level of professionalism whilst following the Chicken Shed mission statement that says they've got to be a pioneering and inclusive company that makes beautiful and inspirational theatre, bringing together people from all ages and all backgrounds to produce outstanding theatre that entertains, inspires, challenges and informs both audiences and participants alike. Step inside and share in the magic with me. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London Legacy. Well, I have to say today I'm, I'm feeling a little bit emotional because this is the first time I've been back to a wonderful venue uh, and place in my life and that of my family called Chicken Shed here in Cockfosters. And I'm with the current director, artistic director, artistic director, artistic director Lou, Lou Stein. Is it Stein or Stein? It's Stein. Stein. Okay. I always ask my guests how their name, because with my name Lazarus, and people always get that wrong. So Stein. Okay. So thank you very much, Lou, for um, having us here today. It's my pleasure to be back here, so thank you very much indeed. As I say, it brings back many, many memories for me, and I'm feeling a, a, a touch emotional, so apologies for that. What's wonderful about <laughs> meeting you, uh, Steve, is that there are so many people. I've only been at Chicken Shed now for three years. I'm succeeding Mary Ward, who is the founder indeed. of Chicken Shed, who was here for 42 years, so it was quite a quite an interesting task to big, see if big we can boots to fill. Fill, fill those yeah. boots. And in a funny kind of way, I'm meeting so many people like yourself who decades ago had in some way their lives either transformed, but at the very least, it was a safe haven for families for whom uh, inclusion was an important word. Yeah, absolutely. So just to, I mean, I, I want to talk to you about your background and how you got into theatre and the, this particular form of sort of inclusive theatre as well, because you've got a very impressive CV and you're involved not just in this theatre, but other aspects as well of theatre. But just to tell listeners my involvement, my son used to come to Chicken Jed Theatre, oh, I don't know, he's 30 odd now, when, when he was nine years old, between the ages of nine and 16. And he used to have, um, and still does to some extent, some, I don't know what they call them nowadays, social emotional learning difficulties i suppose and never quite fitted in any particular environment particularly his his school so my wife used to pick him up from school he used to be you know maybe shunned or come out on his own or my wife used to be called in because he'd done something he shouldn't have done he was you know inappropriate behavior shall we say and so to come to chicken shed and to be included with other kids of a wide range of background and diversity and abilities and disabilities and to be totally embraced was something quite unique for him and for us so that's why I'm saying I feel a little bit emotional to come back here because he was here for many years and part participated in, in many shows even having one sort of lead vocal in one show which we still talk about to this day <laughs> it's much to his embarrassment so it, it really is lovely to be here and it's a wonderful thing so we'll come on to chicken shed in a bit but let's understand first how you what was your first involvement or what's your first memory of, of theater or your love for theater so uh i think that's very much connected to the first of all understanding that i'm a new yorker and i'm the real thing uh, my mother and father were 
from New York. My grandfather is from New York. Pretty much came from the kind of Jewish diaspora, Lower East Side story, and, and so, and that's still very important to me. That 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 kind of cultural tradition. It's also a mixed, very diverse tradition, uh, and 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 maybe there's something about ending up at a place as diverse and inclusive as Chicken Shed to the beginning of my story, because my mother was actually Spanish. Okay. And Catholic, right. um, and my father was uh, uh, came from an Orthodox Brooklyn Jewish family, so the sparks flew That's right, right at the mix. beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but what uh, what was wonderful about the neighborhood that I came from is that, which was South Brooklyn uh, in those days, it truly was diverse. I mean, you had uh, you know uh, you know Italian people, Black people, Hispanic people, all attempting to coexist, and 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 in fact coexisting. In the end, really well, and it was that mixture that I love. And one of the things about Chicken Shed, and, and in fact North London, that I love, is that the audiences and the people who come here are as diverse as New York. And mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. You know, people. You know, we all have different ethnic backgrounds. We have different capabilities. We have different talents. Many people mistake Chicken Shed as being only for um, young people who have disabilities. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are many who, who do, but we also get rich kids from North London who want sure. to be around that. Yeah. And I think that's part of the key to the success. Uh, but going back to early days, so I was a, you know, I was a New Yorker through and through. I went to university at uh, Northwestern University, which is in uh, Chicago. And it was there that I originally went for journalism, but I fell in love with theater there. And I realized I didn't want to write about facts. I wanted to write about fiction, mm -hmm. things that somehow illuminate the world around us in a very different way. And I think that was a very big kind of uh, revelation for me. So it wasn't one, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I went and saw that one show and it turned me around. It wasn't like that for me. It was kind of a slow burn. And, and so I, I was interested originally in writing, and that still is, you know, kind of my main trade, particularly adaptations. And it was only that I was able to make money directing that, right. <laughs> that I went into directing. Um, but a friend who lived uh, here, uh, an American Irish friend, said, hey, we've got a company. I was all of, you know, 21 years old in uh, London, group of Irish actors, you want to come out and direct? I said, well, okay. And I came out and it was from there really that the roots of me you know, settling here began. It was such a wonderfully theatrical place. You had, um, I must tell you a story about something that did really change my mind about what theater can be. I used to go to the old Vic and see, when I was young, and see people like Laurence Olivier do, you know, Henry V and... And I remember we'd sit up in the gods, up in the um, the upper levels, and I'll never forget running into these two Cockney ladies. I said, "What are, what are you guys? What are you doing here?" What, what, oh, we love Lawrence, and we 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 see all the shows, we see all the Shakespeare. I said, "What do you guys do?" And she said, "Well, you know, she um, she's a cleaner, and I work in a in a kind of you know a, a calf." Yeah. Um, and I said, and you love theater? And she said, yeah, oh yeah, we come every week. And I love that about London. Instantly dispelled the myth that it's for the hoi polloi upper class. It, it, it really was a myth, and there wasn't just an elite coming to it, but it was part of the lifeblood of the city, and that was wonderful. And that connection to theater is what really drew me to London. But presumably there was a sort of, 
you know, theatrical history to where you were living as well in, in New York. Absolutely. I mean, funnily enough, there was theater all around me. Mm. I mean, it was a time in New York where, you know, we're talking about the, the you know, the 70s, uh, where New York was a rough city. There was a lot of conflict. There was, you know, it was, it was not a, a safe place. Mm. But it also was a place where artists and and theater was growing and you know you had fantastic visual artists coming out of that and out of that kind of again diversity and a bit of conflict came some wonderful art everything from bob dylan emerging from that to basquet the uh, painter theater in the streets you know performance theater and i loved all that mm. Were your parents sort of heavily involved with theatre and the arts at all, or was it something you found not, not for yourself? Not at all. My, my father died when I was young. I was seven years old, and he was actually a professional boxer. Okay. And, uh, and a lot of people always raise their eyebrows, and that's interesting. But, of course, what people forget, in the 1930s, there, there were a lot of Jewish boxers yes. because out of the ghetto, which it was at the Lower East Side, it was one way of earning some money yeah. and getting out of that. No, as, so, as, as in London as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So um, I, I, have, I have a memory of my, my father um, putting me in a big sand pit in a park, you know, with a kid twice my size and putting gloves on me. I was all about five years old. I said, get out there. And I remember being knocked out. And he sort of, uh, uh, you know, said, come on, you know, get up. You know, that's what life's like. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it sounds harsh, but it was a great, I have great memories of him in terms of taking a very kind of different view. I think when I went to Northwestern, which is a very, which is a small elite college which uh, excels in theater um, and, and excels in journalism i kind of had a few of the edges rough edges of me knocked knocked out and mm. and sort of uh, it was a great place to go because it was you know you kind of turned you into somebody who can socially get out there and and and, and have a little bit of confidence mm. uh, uh, and i did go to i was part of the theater program there and um that that really was great because it introduced to me what theater really is and it gave me the skills to have the confidence to come to london and start in a pub in a pub theater uh, so my irish friends took me to an irish drinking pub which has long since now become uh still exists where was this in, in so it's the gate theater in notting hill gate okay and it was the days when the gate wasn't you know the days of Hugh grant's gate it was a very bohemian um wonderful again mixed uh -huh. area and there was a large room above a pub and the firemen used to drink there on Tuesday evenings. And they said, well, we're looking for something to put in there. And I said, well, why not do theater? And in those days there was such a thing. And in fact, it's coming back now. Pub theater was great because it was inexpensive because the pub made the money by people who drank yeah. there. And uh, a group of young kids got together. We did uh, both American and European plays there. But the wonderful thing is we got really talented people. So people like Hugh Grant got their start there. Jude Law started there. My The person who succeeded me was a director called uh, Stephen Daldry, who went on to direct Billy Elliot, the film, etc. Mm -hmm. So it became a hothouse for kind of young talent that wasn't getting in in the traditional roots of theater. Uh, and it's since become a very, very important, famous uh, small venue. It still only seats... 60 people but it gets every reviewer in the country coming to what what's shown there and is it actually the same physical venue as it was before or has it moved? it's in the same physical building but it's all been kind of zhuzhed up and right. you know kind of nice 
Knights of Crow, I mean, proper seats yeah. and, and all that. But it's essentially, the spirit is still the same. I'm still very much uh, connected with them in, as, as a kind of advisor. And it still is about young people cutting their teeth, young actors and directors cutting their teeth. And it still has the same kind of attention on it. I think theaters like that reflect their community. And uh, so in the days when Notting Hill was a kind of slightly bohemian, slightly arty place, the gate reflected that. So it had a, you know, sets weren't that important. You know, there was actors acting under three lights and, and, and that reflected that, you know, what the area was about. Notting Hill is now a very kind of posh, well-heeled area. And all the work that goes on in the gate, I think is very inventive. I think theaters need to reflect their environment. And I think that's what's happened. But the seed of the gate still remains. So, was that where you cut your teeth, as it were, in sort of direction and artistic? Yeah, work? I mean, the gate was a Cinderella story. I was basically an American person. I wouldn't even call myself a director. I hadn't really done much directing with an idea, which was to do this international work. And uh, suddenly, and I don't think this could happen anywhere in the world, and there's something about London in those days, and I think it still exists now, which had a kind of openness. So nobody had heard of me, nobody had heard of the gate at that time, but we were doing work that interested people. So we got newspapers, we got agents to come. I think that kind of thing is almost unheard of in America. I, I just don't think it happens that way there. And I think that openness, although it has changed somewhat, I think you could still get on the, on the phone or email somebody and say you're here. And if you're doing something interesting, you can alert people to what you're doing. And mm. I think that's a wonderful part of what London's about. Absolutely. And that's why we do Your London Legacy, because we find it so diverse and so wonderful and all the different characters you, you meet reflected in theatres as in society as well. So you moved on to Watford, I think, after that, to Watford so, Theatre? Uh, Watford Palace Theatre yeah. was a huge move for me. At sure. That. So Watford is only about 20 minutes outside of London and more or less is a satellite town of, of London. 900-seat theatre. It had an Arts Council um, subsidy. It had a... a, a Huge audience. I, su I succeeded Michael Attenborough from the famous Attenborough family. And uh, that was wonderful because, A, I was getting paid, which was nice. <laughs> so had you not been paid in the previous? No, no, it was uh, absolute profit share. We literally, after the week, we sort of divvy, up, divvy the stuff. And, and um, it really was a collective in the, in the way that okay, it worked. I didn't, that didn't appreciate that. If there were 10 people involved with the show, we took the money and divided amongst 10 people. Crikey. So, uh, you know, all of us had to have other... So where, where you were know, you living at the time? Were you in shared accommodation with other members from the... I, I, yeah, at the time, just with a group a group of friends, it was, you know, in Shepherd's Bush, which is slightly less well-heeled yeah. than Notting Hill. But it was the days, and this is really interesting, and I think this is kind of true what's happening in, in New York, you know, or, or what has happened... London in the, now we're talking early 80s now, was a place that you didn't have to have much money to exist. So, you know, food was cheaper, housing was cheaper. And I think that attracted artists, it attracted theater makers. I think that it's much more difficult right now for people to get started. I don't think the gate would get started now because you wouldn't be able to live in London on that basis. And I think that's changed the art scene quite a bit. And I think it's made it less attractive Things changed sure. everything quite a bit. The fact yeah. that youth today struggle to do anything in London unless you're making a fortune. Absolutely. To, to find their feet and live on, you know, spread their wings and fly, as it were. Yeah. 
So you coming over and making a go of it in the 80s was probably very sort of opportune at that time. It was, a, it was a good time to do it. So Watford Palace was great because it was proper theatre in the sense that everybody was paid properly, but also we did a lot of West End transfers. We I worked with people like Helena Bonham Carter. You know, Jude Law came and did work at Watford. And it was easy to get to, and we were doing work that was either new work or new versions of international work. So what, what, what shows or plays went on from there to West End? I did a play with, I was called Madame Bovary. It was a new adaptation of Madame Bovary. And we worked, very often we would work with uh, co-producers. So that starred Helen Mirren when she was mm. younger. And Helen actually was just getting started in LA and actually came back to do this version of Madame Bovary in this outer London theater because she wanted to do the work. And I think that, again, is something that characterizes London at its best yeah. theater scene-wise, is that you find people like Helen working in smaller theaters because they want to do the work. Again, not something that happens regularly or at all, really, in the States. So you were putting on these shows at the uh, Watford Palace Theatre. You were there for best part of 10 years, I believe. Yeah. 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 What, what was your role there? You were artistic director there I as well? I was artistic director. Yeah. 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 And you also set up, I think, was it round about the same time? Or subsequently, you set up your own company, Lustein Associates, or was that sometime later? Yeah. So that, that was a little, little later, but only a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. I, I think what happened is that in, in London, in fact, in the UK, uh, you certainly as a theater director, you reach a point where you either go to the National Theater or you go to the Royal Shakespeare Company or you go to the Royal Court. Mm. At that time, I was shortlisted for the Royal Court and it was a sh I would love to have done it. I didn't get that. And that made me think, okay, do I want to continue working at this level or do I want to create work on my own? And there was something about an entrepreneurial spirit that I've always had. I think now it's respected in London. In, 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 uh, when I was starting The Gate, people almost dismiss me sometimes as an artist because, well, how can an artist be entrepreneurial? Now, of course, an artist has to be entrepreneurial. But it's part of that spirit, which was, okay, A, there are things I want to do that don't have easy theaters that might want to do it. So um, I started to do a lot of work with my wife, which had to do with working with contemporary music and theater and getting grants and private money to back it and sponsor it. I also had a, a, a really interesting moment. I was going back on a train with the CEO of what was then Anglia Water. Okay, so big company mm -hmm. here. And um, he was saying, oh, I'm doing this big speech and I have no idea, you know, it's to all my shareholders. and I'm, I'm going to completely flop because I have no skills at all in this area. And I said, well, you probably do. And he said, well, I used to act. And then I realized that almost everybody either used to act or has some sort of inner acting spirit in them. In fact, everybody does. We all act actually every day. Uh, we put on- We're all putting on some persona. We put yeah. on a persona. Yeah. So it was that idea. So he said, would you come and help? Just give me a few sessions on uh, you know, body language and vocal presence and- uh, so out of that, I devised a way of working, which is called telling a story, which is that every communication that you have, you know, whether you work in property or insurance or wherever, has to tell a story, even if you're on the phone. 
And so that became, and I really got interested in that. I didn't want to to take over my life as a business because I identify myself, my identity is as a theater maker and a, and a writer and a director. And that's what where my passion is. But I did get something out of working with, uh, one of the hardest jobs I've had was working for British Gas. My brief was to get them to, uh, they were doing a big, because uh, uh, the whole, gas industry and all that is all about partnership it's all about global partnership which oil and gas engineers are not naturally <laughs> not naturally gifted in that and sense. there were these guys i have to say sitting with their arm crossed saying okay the boss said we have to go through this yeah and after four days i had them singing a bit of an opera really enjoying singing creating a little musical themselves which related to them getting over their fears of being a presenter. So I love that. I, I love that aspect of it. I suppose I've always seen theater as a kind of connector rather than a thing uh, in society, rather than a thing in and of itself. Mm. A lot of my career obviously depends on doing bread and butter work, like directing, touring plays or directing for the West End. And that's part of living. But I've always not been just satisfied with theater as a kind of, well, let's do something art for art's sake. And I've always in enjoyed the idea of connecting the skills that we all have in theater. So into it's, a, it's an entertainment, but it's also a tool to facilitate growth in, in people individually and in organizations correct. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 that, and it could be really powerful uh, in that sense. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, public speaking, acting, I suppose, is exposing yourself publicly, and that's one of the people's biggest fears, isn't it? Is people get terrified of absolutely it. Absolutely terrified. People, I mean, the most confident people in, in the world are terrified. Mm. And it's really kind of getting people past that moment of, I can't do it, and I don't, you know, that's not what I do, to actually realize that we all have a potential to communicate. We have voices, we of have our we bodies. Do. And, and, and I, I feel the, the terror is of what we think other people's expectations are of us exactly rather than yeah. just just being ourselves and what the hell you know everybody likes a good story and that's what you realize is that everybody likes a beginning middle end and likes to get engaged with it and and if you get onto the idea that every communication we have with with everyone is about a mini story even if you're just networking with somebody and you meet them for 10 minutes which is why you can make one of two decisions. You could either kind of just gabble on about whatever comes in your head, or you could actually say, who is this person I'm talking to? Who's your audience? And what about myself do I want to convey to them? Which moves your story on a little bit from where you were. We haven't even mentioned the fact you were chief executive of East, East of uh, England Arts Board yeah, uh, so, in the late 90s. Yeah, that was interesting. I'll I tell you where that came from. I had been at Watford, and I, was really, I wasn't very good at getting funds, raising funds and public money, which in London and the UK is a very, very big, important part in a way that it isn't in the States of, uh, of supporting artistic projects. I just didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to make grants. I didn't know how to. And I was headhunted by the Arts Council at that time because there was a lottery system coming in and suddenly the arts had huge amounts of money coming into the system and they were looking for experts uh, who could advise the, uh, the Arts Council on where to put that program. And I'm talking about multi, multi-million pounds uh, in cap capital projects. 
coming in suddenly. One year, the arts was poor, then the lottery came in and the arts was rich. Yeah. And sort of everybody got interested in that. So I became, uh, they asked me to be chairman of the Eastern region, which is the largest region in the UK, which uh, includes Essex, uh, Lincolnshire, uh, Hertfordshire. Yeah. And, and after being chairman, they asked me to oversee the, that, that region's lottery influx. And, and, and I thought, so you were responsible for the bidding process, the, the bidding process, and also how it was distributed, and how it was distributed, and that was fantastic. It was a really fantastic lesson in how money flows. Um, it connected me immediately to politics because politicians are interested in that kind of money and how it goes. You mean something other than Brexit. Well, <laughs> thankfully, it was pre-Brexit, so I don't know what we would have I think done we're here in 10 years' there. time, you'll still be talking Brexit. Yeah, yeah, if we have any theatres left at all. Well, that's another matter, yeah. <laughs> but, so, uh, so you're learning, well, developing your skills, shall we say, in entrepreneurial and, and how money works and on flows a big, through, on a, through on a bigger big level, yeah. on, a, on a bigger level. Yeah. And, uh, and after three years, when uh, the job then became a job of management rather than of developing avenues for where the money might go and working with large organizations, I got in disinterested because I thought that's not, I'm not uh, essentially a manager. You know, I've always kind of been kind of the foreground, the explorer in organizations and that interested me. And I realized I don't, I don't really see myself as becoming a civil servant, which is more or less where the job was going. So I'd done the job with the lottery money and I re-entered the kind of theater theater world again. That's when you went back to Watford, was it? I didn't Darnold? go back to Watford uh, because I'd left Watford. Are you already gone on. by that stage? I right? actually started to do a lot of producing, directing, and running for BBC, okay. and uh, did a lot of work for Radio Three and Four in the freelance capacity as a freelance yeah. independent producer. And that was I love that. I mean, it was just great. I still do have producer status with the BBC, uh, and what was wonderful about that is that a lot of people don't realize that between BBC Radio Three and Four. Over a thousand plays are produced, so I get to I got to work with people like um, Patrick Stewart, Benedict Cumberbatch, Jenny Agutter. Uh, it was just it's it's you know it's, it's a wonderful thing. There's no real business of radio that I could see outside of the UK. Canada and Australia have a bit of a in terms of di distribution. I'm really glad to see now that there's kind of online and internet companies beginning to enter the fray and beginning to see the value of BBC. Uh, not not BBC, but drama, yeah. as something that people are interested. I remember um, doing a play called Embers with Patrick Stewart, and a friend of mine saying, "Oh my God, I was driving somewhere in Suffolk, and I had to pull over, and and, and you know listen to the end of the, uh, the the show. I was so enthralled, and you realize that happens for a lot of people. Yeah, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Mo moving people emotionally, taking them from one place to another through storytelling. And radio is very intimate. Yeah. As, as is as is podcasting. Uh, I was just going to say, and <laughs> yeah. people enjoy that. It's it's almost a, it's a one to one experience. Yes. Well, I think I said to you off off mic, as it were. You know, my my first real experience was when I was in hospital, laying flat on my back for the best part of two weeks, and I needed some form of entertainment because I couldn't watch television. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think there was a television on the on the ward, so I just was laying there under the sheets with an earpiece in, listening to audible books, radio, and then I found podcasts. So. Yeah. And the beauty of podcast, probably more so than radio, is you can tune into a topic as niche as you like, whenever you like, and stop and start and go back to it as often as you like. 
And it, as you say, it's really, really personal to that person, to that listener. So that's fantastic. But going back to going back to your story, you, you've got this whole array of skill sets now that you've developed right from your student days, entrepreneurship, big business, bit of politics, production, self-employment. You've got everything now. So what is it that drew you into, how, what's, what's the connection that brought you here to Chicken Shed? So the absolute direct connection was my son, Ethan, who's now just about to turn 13, who has Down syndrome. So my wife, who's a contemporary composer here named Deirdre Gribben, and I uh, didn't have any uh, uh, children when we had uh, Ethan. In fact, Ethan's my only child. And when you become the father of a child with a disability, it it changes your life. You you are in a in in some ways. I I, I feel you you can you can feel very excluded from a lot of things. You know, as as your kid grows up, they go to parties. Your kid may not be invited to parties. Yeah. The socialization is difficult, and suddenly, from being a very social person, uh, fairly well known within my business you realize that there's an isolation that begins to happen. And so uh, after, when we first have had Ethan, it was a terrifying experience. I mean, it was really, I remember the uh, hospital giving us a badly copied sheet that said what to do if you have a child with Down uh, syndrome. One of those sort of photocopied yeah. Yeah, information. Uh, and, uh, and then asking us if, you know, uh, what decision we want to make about Ethan, when there was no question at all, but even that the question was asked is quite was quite shocking. So after a kind of, you know, frankly dark period, you begin to realize that this child is a child, is a person that's reacting mostly in the same way that most other human beings do, and has certain things happening, which means that that child is reacting differently. And so I really thought about difference for the first time. I thought, okay, is there something wrong with difference? Are we all in a society where we all have to be exactly the same? And if we're not the same, then somehow something's wrong with you or, or you can't quite you know, figure where to go. So one of, the, one of the things that happened is that an old friend of mine who was one of the uh, um, founders of Comic Relief uh, said, why don't you talk to this woman called Mary Ward has a place called Chicken Shed. And I, I hadn't heard of Chicken Shed. And um, uh, this was only about eight years ago. And I said, well, okay, can you give me a contact? She gave me a contact number for Mary, who is the, what at that time was the, still the artistic director and founder and just about everything here at, uh, at, at uh, chicken shed and she was so kind and generous with her time she was aware that i was from the theater world and she was wonderful about at once welcoming you but also saying pretty much is there any way you can help chicken shed in the most beautiful way that made you want to help um, so i got marginally involved uh, at that time after a year, Ethan began, because he was too young at that time, but when he was seven, he began coming to the children's theater here. And what happened to him was simply remarkable. He started to gain a kind of confidence. He started to walk out of the sessions with his chest out. He was speaking with people who were all different kinds of people around and ages around him. And the one thing that I pride in Chicken Shed, and it existed then, and... 
I hope still exists, is this sense as when you walk through the doors, no one is different and everybody relates to you for who you are. And that was absolutely evident with the way Ethan used to come out of the re those rehearsals. And I thought, this is extraordinary. Then I went to see one of their plays, because for me, quality is important. It's not just enough to say, well, isn't it lovely that we have all these mixed kids and a lot of kids with disability, because what they engage with, with has to really add value to their lives and not just occupy their time for a few hours. And I went to see one of the manifestations of Midsummer Night's Dream here, and I thought it was one of the most extraordinary shows I'd ever seen and how it was executed, the, the, the kind of range and diversity of people in it and the quality of the production. But at that time, I was still a parent, picking Ethan up, chatting with him about his experiences. He appeared with Tom Jones as part of the Children in Need television broadcast with a small group of kids. And here was little Ethan, eight years old with Down syndrome with a group of kids who were part of the chicken shed singing troupe. And there he was being part of it. So I think that whole idea of how theater can be a foundation for giving people a life. I know sometimes we, we uh, sometimes I feel this is a bit of a boast that we transform people's lives. We don't transform every person's life, but we certainly at the very least impact it somewhat. There's very few people I've run into, no matter how long ago, like yourself, Steve, who haven't said that was a really significant moment. And the fact that theater can have that kind of impact on lives is breathtaking and wonderful. So when the ad came in The Guardian, which I was reading, uh, which is our newspaper here, one of our um, liberal newspapers in London, saying uh, that they were looking for an artistic director, I, you know, I thought, I, you know, I don't know if I can do this because I'm a, I'm a professional director from a largely commercial world. But I thought, well, Ethan has taught me something about inclusion and diversity, and maybe I could be right for it. So I applied for it and went through the most difficult, it was a bit Seriously. of an audition. It was five, yeah. five stages of interview. I've never right. been through it in my life. Apparently hundreds of people applied, so there was a great interest. And um, I got the job, and I was delighted. And I, I often say, and I still believe it, that's the best job I could ever imagine having had, not only just in the theater, because it's not just about giving kids skills and giving kids confidence through performance, but it's about social change and social inclusion and changing not just the kids who need that type of help, but changing the kids who maybe come from um, privileged backgrounds where there is plenty of opportunity, but they may go on in life and actually think about how their business or how they are with people who are less fortunate. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think it's not, whilst the most important thing in my in my estimation is the value of inclusivity and diversity that it brings to kids of all abilities. Um, you mentioned your kids got downs, but there's all sorts of physical and you know learning disabilities, and they're they're they're, they're treated not as someone with an issue in life, but as someone to who's got something to give to the troop, to the community, to to the to the process. Beyond that, I think Chicken Shed is not just of benefit to the participant, but to the wider individual families of the participant yeah. and the community at large. Yeah. Because as you've obviously, you said it was a dark time for you, you know, learning that your 
beloved child, Ethan, you know, was going to have some problems in life, as it is for many of the parents who bring their kids here. But to know that you can drop your kid off here safely, you know, bring them to the, you know, to the, um, the, the, the workshops and the rehearsals, and they know they're going to be looked after and cared for and included, is just such a heart-lifting, warm, warm, fuzzy feeling you get inside. I love it. And, I, and actually, I feel an immediate connection with those parents. And it's not, by the way, it's not just parents of kids who have disabilities. Absolutely. There's parents yeah. who are single parents who have had something happen in their lives. It doesn't have to be hugely dramatic. We're doing a play now which has been reviewed very well nationally called 100% Chance of Rain, which takes young people's take on mental health, yeah. which is so prevalent. It's, we're talking about it a lot now for good reason because it affects almost every family. And you know, to see the young people have a process by which they can vocalize those issues and then form it into a play which a national critic can come and not patronizingly say, isn't it wonderful and earnest, but say, look, this was spectacularly beautiful and affected me because it had that quality, but it also had the youth voice in it is unparalleled. Yeah, absolutely. You don't, you don't want critics to come along and just, you know, give you a pat on the back and be patronizing because you've got some, you know, kids with disabilities and then say, oh, yes, that, that was great. When I first arrived, I, I, quite a few papers interviewed me. And one of the um, one of the things they said, you know, was interviewed by a, the Stage magazine, which is the trade paper of theater. And the headline was taken from what I said, which is, is I do not want Chicken Shed to create earnest theater. I don't want people to say, isn't that lovely? They do all those lovely things for all those. There you go. I You've got it right me. there. <laughs> I and do my I, research. <laughs> and I believe it. Yeah. I, I believe it. In other words, we shouldn't be patronized. We should be, uh, people ought to be saying, which they're beginning to say, my God, what a talented bunch of people they have collected up there. So you're looking at them for their talent. Exactly. Not, nothing exactly. else, just yeah. that how good a performer they are. Yeah. I established a monologue series where small teams of director, actor, and writer did monologues about issues that concerned them and performed them publicly. And we had one young lady with uh, cerebral palsy, pretty verbal, but there are difficulties in understanding her completely. And she wrote this very funny little monologue about going to nightclubs and flirting with the uh, bouncers to be able to get in and meet meet who she wanted to meet the performers and um i said do you want to get an actor to do it or a dancer to say no i want to do it i want to verbalize it and she did she performed her piece and it was the most stunning expression of someone who at once feels trapped but also sees her disability as part of her identity and she ended it by saying why Chicken Shed was important. And she said, you know, when she first came through the doors of Chicken Shed, something lifted off her shoulders because people didn't stare at her or treat her like a child or ignore her. And that is astonishing. So Chicken Shed is, is obviously very well known now. I mean, Chicken Shed's been going over 40 years, I believe. Yep, and Chicken Shed derives from the fact, I think, it, it did actually originate in something akin to a chicken, a wooden it chicken shed. Or a coop. It a was actually a chicken shed. It, it Okay, well, no longer. <laughs> it's, we've got beautiful um, premises here in, in Cockfosters. You're bursting at the seams here with, with staff and, you know, studios and what have you. It's very well known, not least for the big musical productions it puts on with the, the huge troupe of kids that come on, all ages and abilities, which which are wonderful. 
and the Christmas pantos that it puts on as well. But there's so much more to Chicken Shed as well. Just talk us through some of the issues, some of the, the things you get up to with your outreach, and you've even spread. You've got another place, I think, in um, is it not Kensington as well? Ken- Kensington, Chelsea, Kensington, yeah. Chelsea. And, and in fact, we have um, offshoot sheds throughout the world. Yeah. One's just opened in New York. We have one in China. We have one oh, wow. in so Finland. You're now international. We are international. So uh, we don't franchise it as such, but we we give them the processes that we work with and spend time teaching that. And then we have, and those actors or social workers, sometimes both, then carries that on at the particular yeah, shed. That's fantastic. I didn't so, know that. I knew you had outreach within this country and you get out to schools and... Um, yeah. I don't know what, what you go to. So I work with we, we we get out to schools, prisons. prisons um, yeah. You know, right now uh, as we speak, we're planning something up the ten year anniversary of something called Crime of the Century, which is about knife crime, and it started off as a play we did. And knife crime in London is a huge issue. I Couldn't think be just, more relevant. Yeah, we um, just heard that the twenty ninth knife murder in London has happened yesterday, and so what the uh, it's a forty five minute show which is about the issues of knife crime. We've now updated it because there's a big uh, females engaging with it. So women, big gangs are happening and getting pretty brutal. And so we're kind of looking at that. But we always use dance and theater as the center of what we do to allow people into the issues. But we go into schools and then the um, actors become a- animateurs, really. And uh, there's not just Q&As, but we involve the students sometimes, bring them on stage and have them participate in a scene. So it's, a, it's an amazing way to, to look at a, a serious issue, but in a way that young people can relate to. And I think that's really the kind of hallmark of what we do, that not only do we do things in outreach, for example, that young people can relate to, but also increasingly it's young people's voice who are creating it. So that is a really good example. We're about to have a week-long conference in May, in, inviting you know big decision makers, uh, you know about you know how to deal with the kind of knife crime epidemic that's going on. But we also have one that's specially for young people trying to tell us how to um, uh, what they think uh, should be done. And I think we're moving very strongly towards a company where young people are telling us not only how to do some of the work we do, but what they want to hear. So for example, right now, the mental health show that we're doing has over 200 people in it. It's a spectacle. Um, but where schools have approached us and said, well, this is a really important issue. Now, obviously, we can't bring 200 people in a set and use um, lighting. But we are now talking about reducing that to a smaller outreach group that will then take the issues that were in the play and bring them out to schools for discussion. So that's a really central part of the work we do. So it's not just the, the pleasure of participating, but there's also social, current social topics that you're addressing as well, be it mental health or knife crime. Addressing or, or... and, and, and hope, uh, helpfully hoping to change how society is viewing it by encouraging society to listen to the young voice. Yeah. But I, I guess what you don't want to be is just another documentary type message you know, broadcast. You want to get out there. You want you still want it to be fun and a professional fun. Well, that's important, and that, and that goes back to I don't want the company to be earnest yeah. because if we just had people saying, standing on stage and saying, "Oh, my life is terrible," and that wouldn't work because you you know you either were on that person's side, you you 
you hear it all the time and you'd somehow be shut out. So the kind of professional, and people say, what do you mean by professional? And I, it's applying professional skills, theater skills. If we were sloppy about what we did and we weren't entertaining, we wouldn't be able to get the messages across. So we have people coming to see a very tough show about young people and mental health and what it's doing to them, including self-harm, suicide, et cetera, which sounds a bit dreary, but we're doing it in a way which A, is uplifting and is entertaining. So it opens out a forum for people and lets an audience in rather than simply tells an audience, this is what we think of the issue. So I think that's a really, really important direction. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important for an artistic director to do at Chicken Shed is no matter where we go with the issues that we take on and how we develop our youth voice, it must be done with the highest professional quality and using the highest standards because that will distinguish us from hundreds of other youth clubs throughout the world. Well, as an amateur and as an amateur who's spectator, as it were, who's come along and seen his son and daughter performing these things, it's always felt 100% professional. So I don't know, you're, you're taking it to yet higher levels of professionalism and standards than maybe were exhibited before. I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to come and see. In 2019, the expectations have changed from what they were 20 years ago. So, you know, I, very often in my own work, I look at what I did on, on film 15 years ago and I go, oh my God, I can't believe I was really responsible for that. And that was where that the criteria of professionalism was at that time. So I think it's really important to keep up with expectations. I think it's really important that where our brand is known. So traditionally, Chicken Shed has not had a lot of national reviews. So this year we've had the BBC News come twice uh, to see our work. We've had the range of political spectrum newspapers from the Mail and Mail on Sunday coming to the Sunday Observer coming for the first time in the history of the theatre and reviewing the show, both very positively. And I think that's so important. But A, it lets more people know about us. But also, sometimes I think, Steve, that people come and think, oh, Chicken Shed, isn't that lovely? And think they're going to come and see a little village hall production. Isn't it lovely? Kind of a, a secondary school Yes. You know, production of a Shakespeare yeah, or something. Know, that. it, that's not what you get here. You get something that really hits you in the eye and, and is enjoyable. So, as I say, you've got the, the main shows, you've got workshops, you've got um, Tales from the Shed, which is for smaller children to come along, younger children to come along and participate in an in interactive way on, on the weekends. And I remember my daughter having great fun. We've still got sort of Olaf the Ostrich and all the other characters. Tales is wonderful <laughs> and is growing and growing. We've just now extended from uh, to, we have a sensory play for zero to threes, which is usually popular. And um, really important because we give, now we give families an opportunity from literally when their child is born, right through to educationally when they are 21. We, we haven't even touched on the educational side. So briefly, because I know, I know we're slightly stretched for time here. But just touch on the sort of educational side of the things that so go on. part of our whole universe is working with an education program, which is a BTEC program, which is you know basically pre going to any college or vocational school, a foundation program leading to a BA. So literally, someone can come to a BTEC 
um, and spend five years with us and get a BA in inclusive theater. And throughout that, those people actually become our outreach people going into prisons and going into schools. They also work with professionals. So I suppose one of the things that I think is important and that I introduced is the idea that it's okay for us to bring in outside professionals because it's great for the young people to actually see how the professional world works and give them a marker. Our designer for the show that we did this past Christmas, A Christmas Carol, was the co-designer of Warhorse. Um, and so adding that kind of professional integration into an education program is important. And I'm really, really personally very interested in transitions after. Uh, so when people get a BA anywhere, actually, then what? I mean, no matter what college or university yeah, you went to, that's a big... So actually developing pathways into companies that may want to work with our people is something that I'm trying to develop. I'm establishing connections with companies and I'm encouraging the company to think past the kind of what happens when they have their chicken shed experience and they can't be classified as young. Yeah. So like life after the shed. Life <laughs> after the shed is a good, yeah. good, good term for it. Yeah. Well... It's been an absolute delight to to be here with you today, and thank you for your time and your your storytelling as well. You've got a wonderful I enjoyed story, it, Steve. It's, it's, it's actually not often that I get to look at the whole career curve, and yes. and interesting to talk to you that my growing up in New York City, absolutely in terms of diversity and inclusion, relates to me being here. Sure. It, it all kind of makes sense. Everything everything is connected. All the dots are connected up somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, just I mean, on behalf of myself and my wife, and I'm sure all the other families of kids who've been here, you know, past, present and future. Just thank you for the amazing work that you do. I, I don't know what specifically the plans you've got going forward, but just keep on doing, keep on excelling and providing the kids, all kids of all ages, all walks of life and all abilities, keep providing them the opportunities that they so richly need and deserve. So thank you ever so much. We'll be around for a while, Steve. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.